Oh, and one more thing. My next one-day online Blazor workshop will be Monday, February 24th. Did you like .NET Conf, but you find yourself wanting some personal guidance as you write that killer Blazor app? Well, let me personally walk you through building a real-world PWA app in Blazor, complete with EF Core, API controllers, generic reusable components, SignalR for real-time collaboration, ASP.NET Core Identity for authentication and authorization, JavaScript, Interop, and user management, all using Visual Studio 2019 and .NET Core 3.1. And if you can't make it February 24th, you can download the screen video from a previous workshop and the materials, which will guide you step-by-step -step with screen captures and code that you can just cut and paste. What are you waiting for? Go to blazer.appvnext.com to register for the workshop or just the materials. Sometimes, don't you feel a bit like you're living in the IDE Stone Age? If so, I wanted to suggest you try Visual Assist, the only extension that fills every gap in your Visual Studio. When developing, tools are everything. We depend so heavily on our environments and spend our entire working days in them, it's no wonder we tend to get a little attached and end up having arguments with complete strangers about Vim versus Emacs or Git versus Subversion. So when a tool comes along that really makes coding better, snapping it up will make all the difference in the world. Visual Assist for Windows is one of those tools. Users say that writing code without it is like going back to the Stone Age, or like programming with stone knives and bearskins. Do you really want to write C++ with bearskins? I didn't think so. So check out Visual Assist's free trial at wholetomato.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Coming to you from the past. Because coming to you from the future is really hard. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is over a month ago we rec we're recording this. This is December yeah. 2nd. Second. And uh, How was your Christmas, buddy? I, I think it was pretty good. I think my Christmas was good because we went out for dinner rather than tried to, uh, you know, make dinner. Cook all the things on Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah, with all the kids, they they like to go, um, you know, for Japanese teppanyaki. That's that's such a New York Jewish thing, right? Going out for Chinese on New Year's on Christmas Day. Yeah, kind of yep, yeah. yep. Well, that's what we do. That's what we did. I think that's what we're going to did. Okay, so because okay. time shifting is hard, I, and I hope my better know framework is still relevant in uh, January. But let's roll the f music and see what happens. All right. <laughs> All right, dude, hit me. So this is a blog post by Steve Sanderson, published mm -hmm. November 18th last year. Yeah. Meet Web Window, a cross-platform web view library for .NET Core. And here's the tagline. It's like Electron, but without bundling Node.js or Chromium and without most of the APIs. Huh. So wow. he, here's what he says. My last post investigated ways to build a .NET Core desktop slash console app with a web rendered UI without bringing in the full weight of Electron. This seems to have interested a lot of people. So I decided to upgrade it to newer technologies and add cross-platform support. The result is a little NuGet package called Web Window that you can add to any .NET Core console app. It can open a native OS window on Windows, Mac, or Linux containing web-based UI without your app having to bundle either Node or Chromium. Wow. He says, I've also decoupled it from Blazor. You can now host any kind of web UI inside the window. The repo contains a sample that uses Vue.js and another that uses Blazor. And he says, caution, this library is super pre-alpha quality. <laughs> pre-alpha. Pre-alpha. <laughs> this is just a straight-up experiment <laughs> by one of the best experimenters we've no ever known. No kidding, right? This is how Blazor yeah. started. Yes. He just, I was poking around, and I did this little thing, and I just happened to change the world with it. Yeah. Well, you, you have to pay attention to this. It's, it's Sanderson. You have to pay attention. But think about, and the reason that he said it's pre-alpha quality, don't use it in production, 
think about the ramifications of this if it becomes a product. Yeah. Just think about that for a second. Okay, and that's yep. that's enough time to think about it. But he <laughs> but that's all the time you need. It's like, wow, you know, um Blazer plus this is like I just like the place where he's at is electrons too big, chromium and note are too big. Yeah. How small can we get? Right. A, you know, WA. Man, it's awesome. It's so anyway, thank you, Steve Sanderson, for once more opening our eyes to some incredible technology and possibilities. And good luck with that. And I, I even hope that I, I even hope that as of today, January 16th, that this has evolved a little bit since then. But even if it hasn't, it's still worth playing around with. So that's you know, what it I took got. A, it took a good year for anything to happen with Blazer. You True. Know, we think about that thing we saw in NDC. Yeah. And just, it was a cascade of things. So it doesn't happen instantly. Although once it's happened, you're just sort of standing there going, wow, this happened yeah. so fast. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, that's what I got. Uh, who's talking to us today, Richard? I uh, wanted to grab a current comment because, we, you know, we're time shifting six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a comment, of, but I thought it was super relevant to this show, but in an indirect way. This is a comment from show 1661, which was talking about Entity Framework Core 3 with Julie Lerman. Mm. And that was a fun conversation, but it actually relates to the comment at the beginning of the show. We were talking, you got to think back to that comment in that show where we were talking about one of Julie's previous shows and this whole conversation about normalization of databases and just the way we were handling data. And these, I brought up this concept of the sacred cow, right? These things we just right. believe because we believe them. Right. And this is what Joel's talking about. He says, that whole thing about sacred cows rings true. I was taught third normal form in school. I can still recall the steps for normalizing things quite vividly. I'm sure they were drilled into us. Yep. But more recently, I found myself in a job that requires some denormalization. There's a certain amount of internal conflict that happens when I encounter a situation that is better solved with denormalization. The part of me that cares about performance, disk space, and so forth wants to fight denormalization, but the other part of me knows that disk space is cheap and the nightmares I've had from attempting to join up historical data over time after the fact. And I'm mm. like, dude, the reason you're denormalizing is performance. That's, that's why you cared. Yeah. Maybe it's something I'm slowly learning while getting older, but there's a balance. Especially when you were young and experienced, you aren't sure how far one extreme or the other you should go. You tend to stick to what you know, which is often what you were taught, and can easily be one extreme without you even realizing. And that's the interesting problem, right? I would, and I would also argue back in those days when we were taught these things, they weren't that extreme. They've just become more extreme because the situations have changed. Right. And so Joel goes on to say it's all about finding balance, but that's really hard to do without the enough experience in one direction or another. You're guaranteed to make mistakes the first time you try anything. And to quote the late Randy Pausch, experience is what you get. When you didn't get what you wanted. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's really good. And and I think it's going to relate back to our conversation today because I think we're going to talk about something crazy like building code in a browser window. Who and, would do that? Uh, that's going to upset some people. Same thing. It's kind of a, but I like my IDE. My IDE is my life. It's like, <laughs> uh, is it sort of a third normal form thing? Is it just a sort of sacred cow? You got to think differently. Uh, so, Joel... Thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on Facebook because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. Absolutely. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. But no chromium, please. It's just too much. <laughs> no, no node, no chromium. If it's just good send, enough for Edge. I suppose. That's true. We are time shifting here. So <laughs> Chromium should be, uh, or Edge should be out. The new version of Edge with Chromium built in should right. be in full release by now. Yeah, go get it. All right. I'd like to welcome back to the show, Mr. Nick Molnar. Nick lives in Austin, Texas and is a husband, father, and by the way, program manager at Microsoft working on Visual Studio Online. No, not that Visual Studio Online, this Visual Studio Online. In his spare time, he can be found cooking up a storm in the kitchen, watching baseball, speaking at conferences, and working on open source projects. Welcome back, Nick. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be back, and uh, happy 
holidays belated. Yeah. Early and belated at the same time. All those good things. <laughs> Visual Studio Online. I've heard that name before. Yeah, you know, that's... <clears throat> so, so we, we re-released. We released the new Visual Studio Online at Ignite this year into, into public preview. And, you know, the chuckle that people are getting on the internet are, yeah, I've, I heard <laughs> that name before. Yeah, now we but, call uh, it Azure DevOps. Or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, and, and Azure DevOps was that one time named that. But the, the problem back then when Azure DevOps was called Visual Studio Online is whenever we would meet with customers, they would say, oh, yeah, Visual Studio Online. I think that's my editor and the browser. And it wasn't right. that thing that's at all. That's what I thought it was. Well, well exactly. It was, very, it was a very common misconception. So, when, so, so of course, the Azure DevOps folks kind of moved away from that name because it was problematic. And you know, a few years later, lo and behold, we decide to put an editor in the browser and the marketing folks at Microsoft hold up their finger in the air and say, I know exactly what people think this should be called. <laughs> and so Visual <laughs> Studio Online comes back out of the, of the chest of good names. There it is. So, and except now its name actually makes sense because it is an editor in, in online. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So it, it's it's interesting because it's not just an editor online. I I think that the it's the notion of a development environment. Right. The IDE. Yeah. It's more than just you know the the text editor, but it's the runtime, the dependencies, the tools, the debugger, the terminal, the customizations and personalizations that you put on top of all of that stuff. I mean, think about it. When you like. From my consulting days, this is definitely ring true to me. I would show up to some brand new client and I would sit down to work on the new project. And I'm looking at anywhere between four hours and four days just to get to the place where I'm up and running. And yeah, so sure. all of that w work that I was doing kind of on day zero, that is what Visual Studio Online is trying to really help alleviate the pain of. So we, we aim to have your dev environment ready for you in about 30 seconds. Um, and so it totally changes the way that either you bring new people onto your existing project or that you yourself go and experiment and try some new project, right? Like imagine getting this into Steve Sanderson's hand and he didn't have to take the time to install whatever it was that he installed for his new project, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Talk about his tinkering. He's going to turn into oh, Santa. I'm looking at Christmas decorations. This future thing is hard for me. Yeah, um, right, right. The analogies are going to be all based on the holidays. Well, so. you don't have to time shift just to... What's interesting? I'm actually in Visual Studio Online right now, and it, while we were setting up, I went and activated a, an environment, and looks very Azure, and it looks very Visual Studio Code. But just some basic things here: when you're opening files and reading and writing and stuff, are these local files? Are they files? That, is there like a place you can put stuff in the cloud can you connect to github what what's the what are our options here yeah so the so the best way to think about it is like i said is it's is it's your whole compute environment and we run that for you in the cloud in azure now you can bring in your own source from any git provider github azure devops repos uh, you can bring in the source from those things just by pointing us at them and we'll load it in there for you and then you can use it so then all of that compute happens in the cloud, and then you use the editor of your choice to connect to that environment. So you can use Visual Studio Code desktop. You can use Visual Studio that is currently in private preview, the ability to use Visual Studio. And then you can use the browser editor, which is based on VS Code. So you can literally open up Edge uh, and, start, and start programming. And so you don't open up local files. Instead, we acquire those files from your source control provider. And then from there, it feels very natural. It feels like you're local. If you say file open, instead of showing you your file system, you're going to see the remote machine's file system. And that's the right. file you'll get to choose. Interesting. Yeah, I can see how with working with repos, it's going to be very, very nice. And of course, the the big questions now are, what does Visual Studio Code have that the browser editor version of it doesn't have? Like, is there anything missing? There's not. So this is one of the beauties of Visual Studio Code and the architecture that that team chose is it is based on Electron. So it right. is and always has been a web application. Hmm. And so 
under the covers, what ends up happening, right? We were just, it's, it's kind of funny that you, you brought up Steve's project. Um, and we talked a little bit about Electron already, because under, under the covers, Electron basically kind of glues together Chromium, the web rendering engine, and Node. And yep. so VS Code uses both sets of APIs. And so you may remember a few months ago, there was an announcement about Visual Studio Code, the remote development extensions that would mm -hmm. allow you to connect Visual Studio Code to a remote development environment that might be over an SSH connection or in WSL or Docker. Mm -hmm. um, what they did to enable that was they effectively split uh, VS Code into two pieces. And you can, you can think of VS Code as having kind of this thin rendering and, uh, layer on the front end. And all of the compute that your editor does, compiling, debugging, language services for like IntelliSense and things like that, running headlessly on the remote, the back end. And so the reason why Visual Studio Online's browser-based editor is so full-featured is because what we've done is we put the back end bits into the environment for you. And then we just render what was already a web application in the browser for you. And we support, mm -hmm. we support the full Visual Studio Marketplace. So you can install your favorite extension and use those things. And of course, you know, I say all that with a bit of an asterisk because we are in public preview. So you know, we're, we're finding edge cases and things that we're fixing. But right. you know, by the time we go to GA, it'll be 100% compatible. But if we go already, so far as to know, say I the code base for VS Code and the code base for the editor parts of Visual Studio Online are the same code base? Correct. Yeah. Ah, okay. You just have two compiling options. You're compiling to the Electron app or you're compiling into your cloud app. Yeah, effectively. I, I like to think of it as two different distributions. You know, there's there's a couple of configuration options that change here and there. Um, but yeah, right. exactly. And then, and then we, we host it up on the web and we tie in the backend services that drive Visual Studio Online to, to you know, our special build. So is there any reason to download and install Visual Studio Code if you just have a browser? Well, there, there could be. There's a bunch of different things that you may or may not want to do in the cloud. And so if you already kind of have a perfectly tuned local development environment, or you spend a bunch of time where you have you know, no internet connection, maybe you're commuting and working on planes and things like that a lot, then having Visual Studio mm. Code installed locally is um, super powerful. Sure. Um, and, and certainly, you know, something that we still recommend and want to support. And in fact, in case I haven't made this clear, you can install the Visual Studio Online extension into Visual Studio Code desktop version and then connect to those same remote environments with the, with the local editor. So you don't have to use the browser. Oh, interesting. And when you do that, the compute, the compilation, the, the running of the app all happens in the cloud, right? In the cloud, exactly. So, so you know, I sometimes get these no noisy neighbor problems on my local machine where I'm trying to run. I'm a PM, right? So my number one app is is Outlook, and I got three or four PowerPoint decks open, yeah. and I'm <laughs> streaming music on Spotify, and my browser has 80 tabs opened, right? And then I try to do a, a compile, and I sometimes run into problems if my project is large enough um, or I have enough things going on. But now I've effectively augmented my compute space, so all of that compilation. Um, ex you know, especially for a big app, is happening up in the cloud and it's separate from me. Right. But you know, you still you still might want to be local if you have some specialized hardware. Maybe you need to use a GPU, or you're plugging in and working on something over, you know, a serial port or a USB connection or something mm -hmm. like that. Those are all reasons why you would want to potentially stay local. Okay. Now, but the other thing that's interesting to me here is VS Code. You know, you sort of got the Visual Studio Camp and the VS Code Camp. And the Visual Studio Camp is I like my IDE. I want all my things in sort of one app, essentially. Yeah. And Visual Studio Code was you compose your own. You have you have your editor over here, your debugger over there. You know, your pipelines look like this. Like you've sort of assembled the bits together. This sounds still like it's an IDE, just happens to be in the cloud, quote unquote. Yeah, exactly. It's the IDE plus. It's the IDE and all the other things that you would also install with your IDE. Because right. even if I install just Visual Studio um, on my desktop, there are other things that I tend to typically want to install as well. You know, like yeah. maybe some terminal configurations and customizations, or maybe I'm installing a separate 
source control manager thing that, that Visual Studio didn't bundle in, right? Anything that kind yeah. of sits outside of that bundle. Mm-hmm. All Testing of those li- things libraries, right? Like that's the classic one, right? Is like, I, I want Selenium or I want... Uh, uh, exactly. Cypress or any one of these other testing libraries. So they still work with the IDE, but they're not in the IDE. Mm-hmm. Correct. Exactly. There's a lot of um, features in Visual Studio proper, shall we call it that, um, that uh, that Visual Studio code doesn't, doesn't have. And that's okay because there are always external tools. You know, I'm thinking about the SQL uh, support, you know, where you just the, the, the database view you know, the SQL viewer or whatever they call that window now. Um, I, I can just install, you know, the SQL server management studio and run that alongside it. So th- there's a lot of stuff in visual studio that exists on its own, right? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Carl. And there are going to be things that visual studio does just by nature that kind of code philosophically has never attempted to do, right? A lot of the, WYSIWYG style editors, the visual editors, uh, that is not really the philosophical focus of code. But that's exactly why we let you provision the environment in the cloud and then connect to it from whatever tool you like. So the Visual Studio support, just like I mentioned, code desktop, you could just say, hey, connect to you know, my environment in the cloud. With Visual Studio, you can do the same thing. Mm. That's currently in private preview and you, you can sign up to get access to that. Um, but then it works the same way. So all of that t- those tools that you'd like, if you want that, that special SQL Server tool or there's something that you're used to, that's great. Continue to use Visual Studio. Do the thing that you love. We just want to augment your compute and give you the power to have the flexibility to kind of isolate projects from each other um, as each environment is isolated. You know, um, Kind of experiment with things, give you the easy onboarding. So effectively, what we're trying to do is let you continue to work with the tooling that you know and love, but give you additional capabilities and not kind of force a behavior change. Yeah. You know, I really got into a mode when I was working on a bunch of different projects where I literally had different VMs of Windows with Studio installed configured for a given client's preferred configuration. So that was the only way I could keep them completely isolated. Mm-hmm. This seems like a cloudy version of that. You are 100% (laughs) right, Richard. What we kind of talk about with Visual Studio Online, the environments that we create, we we kind of talk about them being disposable. And I mentioned that we try to make an environment creation take about 30 seconds because Mm -hmm. the behavior that we see and what we heard from customers is that they want to be able to kind of, I call it channel surfing, right? Just like what you were doing with multiple VMs, just kind of, switch to channel three and now your environment looks and feels completely different. Now it looks like a node environment. Switch to channel four and now it looks like a .NET environment or it looks like, you know, project foo for the accounting department at work. And, uh, you know, the other one looks like something for the IT department, right? And they completely look and feel different. And, yeah. and this particularly resonates when we talk to cloud native developers who are maybe doing some, some polyglot or microservices and they have a whole constellation of services that they're trying to keep track of all of the environment and what they need to install. And when you start to get to the union of all of those things, that's when it really becomes complicated to keep an environment, a local development environment up and running. Because all of a sudden I get onboarded onto some new project. I have to install a different version of some runtime. And now I'm incompatible with the other project that I'm working on. So that isolation that you were using with VMs, this is exactly what that would give you. And then when you want to connect to one, it's, it's just you know, 30 seconds to reconnect. Hmm. Yeah. It was not 30 seconds between VMs, friend, let me tell you. <laughs> no, well, exactly. <laughs> and and there were certain components just like, I'm looking at you like office tools. Like if you had, <laughs> if you're working on a project where you needed to interact with office via C sharp, you need to keep that away from everything else. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah that was I, a grumpy environment. Yeah. So some, some stacks are a little bit more opinionated about what, needs to be set up on your local system than, oh, yeah. than others. And they, don't, so. they do not work and play well with others. <laughs> so, so the isolation is a really big benefit of moving your dev environment to the cloud, but also this, you know, kind of going back to this nature of, of these things being disposable, you know, a lot of people think of an environment setup as a thing that you do once in a while, once per project, once every six months, or, or every quarter, something like that. But mm-hmm. once you kind of have the power to quickly create them and throw them away, 
it begins to change the opportunities that you have for your work. So, you know, my buddy calls me up and says, Hey, can you do a code review for this thing? Well, it was for my last project that was Java. I don't have Java on this machine. That's a pain uh, for me to go and set that up just to do a review. I just want to, you know, debug something. No, I just fire that Git URL into Visual Studio Online. It creates an environment for me. It has Java that I need. I'm running the code in 30 seconds and then I throw it away when I'm done. Yeah. Right. Well, and thinking about what Sanderson's you just talked about, Carl, like, wouldn't it be great to have a click onto an environment that lets you just explore that, try it for a while, and then you let it go. It's, it's gone again. For Ultimately, demos yeah, and things, man. it'd be astonishing. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and we have that. We have that exact same scenario. So <laughs> perfect transition point, fellas. Uh, <laughs> look at, look yeah, at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we basically have, uh, we, we call it the deep link that you can create. It's a little hyperlink that you just put together some query parameters and you can drop that hyperlink on a readme on your repo, put it in your company wiki or anything like that. And when some dev comes by and says, oh, I want to work on this project, they click the link and 30 seconds later, they're sitting in the environment for wow. that source code. And so I actually have a, um, we put a link in the show notes. I have a repo of a sample app that I completely built in Visual Studio Online in the browser, kind of as a dog booting exercise. But that has uh, one of these links that you can just click on and cre- create an environment. By it. Drops it into an environment for you. Awesome. Yeah, you know where I'm thinking about it is, is stuff like Humanitarian Toolbox, where we have volunteer developers coming in to work on a project for a while. And just to, yeah. again, it's that same thing of it's a half day setup to get people <laughs> to a place where they can contribute code successfully. And if you could eliminate that, that would be really powerful. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of that old joke of I went to the 24-hour hackathon last weekend. What'd you build? My CI/CD pipeline? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's, exactly. that's gone now because, you know, the, the team can just set up one of these hyperlinks or the organizers or, or you, Richard, at the Humanitarian Toolbox and kind of, yeah, click a link and you're onboarding your volunteers. And the time that you're getting from them is now way more productive than, you know, kind of all the menial setup tasks that, that would have happened yeah. otherwise. Wow. So cool, man. All right. Let's start, let's start after the things they can't do yet. Like, give me an existing Visual Studio setup and say, push this to the cloud for me, please. So, we have an option for that. Okay. And so, so far, everything that we've talked about has been what I would consider to be a cloud-hosted or a managed environment. Right. And, and Carl asked a question earlier, when would I want to install things locally? And one of the examples that I gave was maybe... You already have something perfectly tuned. You already have a perfect dev environment. Maybe your IT department kind of manages images for you. And so you don't have to worry about this stuff. Well, the other option we have beyond the cloud-hosted managed environments is a self-hosted environment where you could literally take that machine that you already have configured and and this quote-unquote, you want to move it to the cloud. There's an option where you can register that environment with our service. And once you register it, we will let you connect to it from any of the editors. Hmm. And so, you know, if, if you know, it's 4.59, I'm still trying to polish off that last bug before I leave the office, I can just go and register my environment. And now while I'm at home, I can pop open my, my iPad Pro or something like that, go into the browser, finish that code up from the browser at home and move on. Huh. Now, the, when you say register the environment, it means that work that I'm doing on my iPad, is it still running against my machine or is it now running against an instance in the cloud? It is now running against your machine. And the registration, okay. that, that's, a, that's a good question, Richard. The registration process effectively allows us to link your machine to our service. We're not running that compute. We're not uploading anything to the cloud at that point. Right. We're just giving you the networking capability to use the same um, uh, editor capabilities to connect to a remote environment to your hmm. environment. Hmm. So you guys yeah. are basically being the the secure proxy for that. Correct. Well, now you're describing another scenario I've dealt with where I'm I want to use contract developers in offsite locations, but I don't want them to have copies of the app. Yep that that's a that's a great case. And so typically in the past, or what we've talked to customers who have tried to do is they'll they'll let the developers RDP in, right? They'll remote yeah. desktop in and try remote to do desktop. something like that. The problem with remote desktop that we've heard from our customers and that you know we've all experienced in the past is it's pretty bandwidth heavy, right? We're literally pushing pixels across yeah. the internet, may- maybe over across a, a very long um, latency connection. And uh, what is different about Visual Studio Online and 
the VS Code remote development tools is we're only pushing the context required for your project. So we're not doing a render on the remote and then sending pixels across the wire. It's just, here's the state from the language server. Here's the state from the debugger. And so it's very lightweight uh, and quick. And actually, in fact, this is a, a true story. I didn't appreciate how much this mattered until it happened to me. So we are going to announce Visual Studio Online at Ignite on, on a Monday mm -hmm. morning in November. Right. And on Sunday, I was IMing back and forth with my director, Amanda Silver, because her and I were going to be doing a demo of this together, and we were going to practice our demo. So I was already at the conference center. The Wi-Fi was horrible. It was horrible the entire show. And so I'm tethered <laughs> over bad. my cell phone. And so we're IMing back and forth. We're working through the demo. One of the features of VS Online is that it allows you to use Live Share to collaborate with other developers in right. real time. Nice. I know, I know that you all have talked about this on Let's the show. Let's hear it for WebSockets. Woo! Yeah. Love so some Amanda and I are working on the code base. We're IMing each other. I said, hey, where are you? Why don't you swing by you know, where I was in the conference center so we can chat face to face? And she said, oh, I can't. I'm in the air right now. No, and that's goodness. when my mind she was literally blown. was flying in. She literally wow. was flying in. I'm on a hotspot on my phone in basically a giant warehouse in Orlando. And we were able to completely build and do our entire project together um, without really any, no latency issues, uh, no problems like that. So, uh, yeah, that's was, the big thing for me with RDP is latency sensitive, especially when you're talking about keystrokes. Like as people are typing, the text isn't appearing. That really throws people off. Yeah. I have yep. that uh, feature integrated into our uh, podcast backend. And so I, I can actually see Richard editing, you know, the, the, the description of the show as he's typing it. It's pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. Signal R. Yeah. Well, and then, and then the other benefit, obviously, when you do a managed uh, environment is the, the full power of Azure is there behind you for that so right we currently support four data centers all around the world we'll be adding more and as we get closer and closer to ga so you know latency issues azure has more more data centers than any other cloud provider that there is so you can get a data center that's going to be pretty close to you um, and even further cut down any of those latency issues absolutely and i'm going to interrupt for this very important message hey carl and richard here We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Are you interested in learning Python but hesitant to make the jump because you're already proficient at C-sharp and .NET? I know how that feels. When learning a new programming language, you go from expert to newbie all over again. But it doesn't have to be that way with Python. The folks over at Talk Python Training have created the perfect bridge for you a nine-hour online course that walks you through all the major parts of C-Sharp and .NET and builds out the Python equivalent with you. It covers the language, the web frameworks, data science toolkits, and much more. So if you've been wanting to learn Python but hate the idea of starting over, don't. Make the jump with Talk Python's Python for the .NET Developer course at talkpython.netrocks.com. And we're back. This is Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. You're listening to .NET Rocks. We're talking to our friend Nick Molnar. You know, he used to be the glimpse guy, but that's a few years ago now, isn't it? Yeah. It has been a few years. Yeah, I looked. The last time I was on the show was three and a half years ago. I, that feels like an eternity ago now. Well, you went into the big blue machine, my friend, and then so you disappear for a while when that happens. You know, I did. I, I did some really cool stuff. We worked on Glimpse for a little while within the company, and I think you'll start to see more and more of that work begin to bear fruit and, and show up in, in places around um, around Visual Studio. And then I went and I worked in Azure for a little while, specifically on distributed tracing for the Azure Monitor team. Uh, really proud of some of the work that we did there. And then when, when the Visual Studio Online project came up and I had the opportunity to, to go back to 
to the Visual Studio team to work on that. It was uh, it was too enticing not to pass up, especially as as a as a remote worker. You know, remote tooling is very near and dear to my heart, and so uh, to have an opportunity to work on what will hopefully be kind of the future of how we do software development, I, I kind of pass up on that. Well, yeah, just that the, that it doesn't matter where people are. You can still contribute to control. You can still see what each other are doing. Like, that's really interesting to, to just think of that kind of diversity. Hmm. For sure. For sure. It's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah. This, and it, this is why I read that particular comment, because that is that sort of uh, what are the sacred cows of software development? You know, one was the big dev machine. Uh, you always needed so much horsepower to have the machine that you could do coding on. And this sort of blows that up. He said iPad and he wasn't making a joke. No, I was not making a joke. Yeah. Our, our kind of tagline has, has been code from anywhere. And that means, you know, code from the coffee shop down the street or code from the other side of the world, your environment yeah. is in the cloud. So you just connect to it whenever you need it. You know, I, I think that there's been, this focus, and, and rightly so, in the DevOps movement, kind of focused on the production workloads, right? Those were the ones to make sure um, that we could automate and control and were repeatable. Yeah. And you start to kind of see that walk left down kind of the deployment pipeline, right? Now you get pre-production and staging kind of environments and maybe some testing environments. And I feel like the, the next step is very clearly the development environment. Um, and, and bringing many of those principles and benefits there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a hard thing, right? Because uh, DevOps, they often talk about you know, the, the cattle and the pets analogy, right? Where yeah. you treat yeah. your servers like cattle, you just kill them, you get another one. It doesn't really matter. They're not that special for you. But think about developers, right? Every single one of them is walking around with their precious with laptop, decorated yeah. in stickers. Like it is, it is, um, such an identity signal of who we are and what we do that it yeah. is very very much a pet yeah and so we were very conscious of this difference when building out visual studio online and 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 in some ways what we've talked about so far has been the quote-unquote catalyzation uh if, if that if i can use that as a word that's, that's an interesting verbing you verbed that <laughs> i verbed it yeah stop verbing these nouns <laughs> so, it, but that gives all the benefits of these quick to create environments and they're reproducible and the three of us can all work on a project together and have the same dev environment. It kind of eliminates the works on my machine problems where you're yeah, the only sure. person who can magically Absolutely. make it work. Right? But and that, that was that DevOps mindset, right? That we simply would be able to regenerate our production environments on demand. Exactly. Exactly. But we also... Mm want to let developers continue to love and nurture their pets, give them the TLC that they need. And so what we've kind of talked about so far is how the environment works roughly and how it can be customized. And those customizations apply for the entire team and all the people using that, that um, environment. Mm -hmm. But we also add in a layer of personalization. And this is, this is one of the things that I really particularly like. So we can both... Uh, or all three of us can point to some repo. We'll all get the same dev environment for that repo. Uh, there, I, I guess I should be a little more clear there. By the same, I don't mean that we're all working against the same VM, but we're all working against a VM that is set up the same way. So we still have isolation, but right. the same configuration. But with the personalization, if I like to have a dark theme for my editor and you two yeah. like light themes, that's fine. I can pick my mm -hmm. font. I can have a set of extensions installed on top of what comes in the environment that maybe you don't want. We even let you bring in, you know, dot files customizations, which are really popular in Linux for configuring your terminal or, right. um, you know, Git or things like that. Um, and so we have a bunch of developers who have all of these aliases that they've set up because they, they started on, you know, oh my Z shell or some dot file framework. And they're not even really sure exactly how to use native git for example because they have these simple aliases you know i, I type in everybody makes fun of me i type in guac gac my friends tell me that that's actually pronounced gack but <laughs> i don't know as as an austin as, as somebody from austin i guess guac is just on my mind all the time but i type that in and that <laughs> you guys see a lot git. of guac down there that's for sure yeah we 
Yeah, walking queso. So my other <laughs> alias is queso. You don't want to know what that is. Um, so you know, I type in guac, and that automatically does my git and my ad, my git add and my git commit all together. Or I use gpom, which does my git origin, uh, git push origin master, right? And developers kind of have this set of automations and customizations, personalizations, really that they've yeah. set up. And so we bring that in and layer that in on top. So all of us get kind of our own opinion about how we want to work with the environment, even though we have the same configuration. And so this idea of moving your dev environment up to the cloud means that you get all of those benefits, the catalyzation benefits, but it also feels immediately natural, like a, you know, a well-worn pair of jeans that you're, you're putting on again for the hundredth yeah. time. Got to be a tricky line to walk down what the developer brings is their personalizations because it could also go so far as tooling some people prefer you know refactor over um code rush you know what i mean and and we allow that it'd be tougher if you got the testing frameworks it's like hey i'd rather do this in any unit right where that's actual code that other people might have to read that's that's a little trickier but Certainly in terms of how you like your environment, what squiggles you get, and what assistant level you get. You could really get very personal on that. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, N unit versus X unit is not really an individual choice. That's a project choice. choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as such, it would, that kind of lives at the team, at the project layer. But that means automatically, you know, you're going to get N unit on your environment and I'm going to get it. And so is Carl. We're all going to kind of be on the same footing there once that decision has been codified into the repo. Um, but yeah, exactly. If I want to use, you know, slightly different font or, you know, there's things that I like or, or dislike that are personal to me and don't really affect the way that you work, we, we, we've we separated that out. So you have those options. And, and in fact, what we do to enable that as we follow a very common pattern that we see, a lot of developers will have private or even public repos up on GitHub with all of their dot files. And so what we do when you create the environment, there's an advanced settings option where you can say, I keep my dot files in this Git repo and we'll bring those in for you and get them set up on the machine. So all those customizations will be in place. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of where the line would be confusing, but I think that basic statement of does it affect other developers in any way? Is is the is the simple one that could does it spit out code? But other than that, I, I can't think of what the other line would be. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the line that we have found to to be the right line. But as I've mentioned, we're in public preview right now, so we're soliciting a bunch of feedback. We're doing all of the feedback out in the open and letting people vote on it. And so, you know, if if there's something that we haven't quite got right, we would love to learn about that um, so we can make it work for as many people as possible. Right. So I'm thinking that there are listeners out there who still use who use Visual Studio proper, you know, professional or whatever, and haven't really looked at Visual Studio code because they're comfy and happy with what they're doing. And so now listening to this might be thinking, well, this might be a good time to check out Visual Studio code and I don't really know anything about Visual Studio Code other than, you know, it's just a kind of a basic editor. But what are the kind of things that I'm going to have to get used to coming from Visual Studio proper to Visual Studio Code, whether it's online or, or not? Yeah, so I think there's kind, of, there's kind of two answers to that. There's the direct answer and the indirect answer. So let me, let me give the first, the indirect answer. Visual Studio Online... Uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, we would love for you to continue to use the tool that you want. So if you're seeing some of, you know, like maybe if you go and watch my session at Ignite, that's online now, and you're seeing me using mostly Visual Studio Code, and you're saying, oh, I got to make that switch. That's not true. You can use Visual mm -hmm. Studio. It's just in private preview right now. But the intent is that we'll fully support Visual Studio and the tooling that you use. You'll just get all of the benefits of the catalyzation of, of the remote development environments. And you'll connect okay. to it, and it, it'll work and feel the exact same way. So I guess my indirect answer is you don't have to switch. My direct answer, though, to not you know be too much of a weaselly politician, is um, you know switching from Visual Studio to VS Code, which is something that I did three or four years ago, yeah. um, just because my work naturally kind of went in that direction. Um, is is really kind of a, a matter of of preference and and style in some ways. Huh. Um, I I kind of really like 
Visual Studio Code personally um, mm-hmm. for for um, how fast and quick it is, uh, quick and easy it is to get up and running. I feel like I can be a part of that community very naturally online since it's an open source project and I can interact with the team on GitHub. And you know, as as a guy who has his roots in open source software development, as Richard just brought up, I, I, had, I had worked on clips back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. That all just kind of feels very natural to me. Now, it, code, you know, by name is obviously very focused on code. So you're not going to kind of have the visual editors that you would get if you're working on, you know, XAML or some HTML type stuff that Visual Studio gives you. Um, but, you know, both are great. And it's kind of just a matter of personal taste in terms of what you prefer to use. But, and what about the build and debug cycle experience? Are you going to have to get used to command line interfaces? Uh, no, good question. So <clears throat> code has an integrated debugger that um, works similarly to the one in Visual Studio, but you're going to have, you know, clicking a breakpoint, you're going to see, you know, that line get highlighted in red, you'll be able to hover over to see variables and call stack and things like that. So it's, it's not a, you know, a CLI based debugger, it is an integrated debugger. Um, and it has an integrated terminal, which Visual Studio also now has too. So right. it does tend to be a little bit more text-oriented when you're authoring, but the debugging experience is very similar. And deployment experiences, if you're deploying you know, to, to Azure, um, also tend to be very similar. But you do have to configure the editor for that. You'll have to go and download you know, the Azure extension for whatever service that you want to then go and be able to deploy to app services, for example. Yeah, very true. Wow, this is all good stuff. All good news. You guys just keep coming out with new surprises every day. It's awesome. Well, good. We're, we're good. Yeah, I'm starting to think in terms of if I'm putting on my CTO hat, I'm, I'm always very careful about how many people I buy Visual Studio for. You know, it's, it's not a cheap product. Right? You're typically committing to an MCN subscription and like there's some stuff there. And this looks like an alternative for at least infrequent users. Although I think I'd like to have an account for every dev just for that remote ability as needed. But I'm just thinking about devs that either don't want Visual Studio or rarely use it. So they're never going to, you know, you know, the guy who only fires up Visual Studio once a quarter and it's never right. So they're, they're going to, they're going to waste a day getting it set up right for whatever problem they meant to address just to get rid of that. Go use go go use VS Online for that. Sure, you could certainly do that. We've we've heard from a bunch of customers who, you know, we'll, we'll talk to big enterprises and they're like, "Hey, look, I have eleven hundred internal applications that I have to maintain." Yeah, and you know, the developers don't maintain those every single day. No, but once a quarter, every six months, they need to go and and fix something, and um, you know, it's difficult for them to maintain the development environment for all of that. So swapping around makes that very easy. Yeah. And kind of with your CTO hat on, Richard, like, you know, Visual Studio Online is an Azure service. Yeah. So if you have MSDN uh, or if you have Azure credits from your MSDN subscription or from any other place, you can go and use that today on Visual Studio Online. So um, because it is a, a real Azure service, You'll see it show up in the portal. You'll see, get your bill kind of in the Azure portal. All of that kind of stuff works the way that you would expect it to work, which means that you may already have the benefit of using this right now um, if you have those Azure credits. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that, that's the interesting part about this is like, again, it's just thinking through what my dev ecosystem looks like with this new tool involved. I mean, yeah. once it's in GA. Yeah. But I, I do feel like that a bunch of my architects are going to have to sit down and start building out. One of the roles is going to be building out all the environments now they, to get those, those templates set up so that people, we do save time maintaining that huge swath of app. Yeah. So what we've been seeing is, you know, you, it, it's not it's not a, a team decision or a decision that you have to make in wholesale where you swap everything over and now you're kind of you know in this dev environment in the cloud. Um, you can continue to have some devs working locally uh, against dev, dev environments that they've you know traditionally used, and other devs occasionally using VS Online are always using VS Online. Yeah, really, the what this is doing, what VS Online kind of is is the is the carrot to entice uh, people to do is to start to think about how to, you know, sprinkle some DevOps on top of their repos. Yeah. So to add in the environment customization, 
you add a JSON file that's called a dev container file and, and optionally a Docker file as well to describe what the environment looks like. But yeah. those are, are common artifacts that can be used outside of VS Online. And so if you have a, a user and your team who doesn't want to use it or can't use it for, for cost reasons or whatever the situation is, they can still benefit from the fact that somebody took the time to write down the configuration of the environment. And you know, VS Online users will leverage that and a click of a button in 30 seconds. And some other people might have slightly more work, but it's still less work than they would have you know, to follow some wiki page somewhere that has you know, the 10 links to the, all the 10 things that you have to go and install on your environment. Yeah, right. So it all kind yeah, of plays sure. together uh, very nicely and, and you kind of dip your toes in or, or dive in straight to the deep end. Yeah, no, it, it, it is an interesting mix and it, it's going to add some thinking, but I'm not, and I'm not saying that in a negative way at all because it's, it, I think it's an opportunity to save some money or to spend it smarter and to, to waste less time. Like the amount of getting up to speed for a minor change on an app thing, like that's none of that stuff's free, right? It all takes time to get it right. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. Yep, we think we think the onboarding benefit in and of itself is is pretty massive, let alone everything else on top. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, when's it go GA? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so we have been in public preview for about two weeks. So we're waiting on the listeners and the user to tell us when this thing will go GA. Um, nice. You know, the whole, the whole point of a preview like this is for our team to learn, to understand where we could be doing better uh, and where we want to be doing better. And so I don't have, I don't have a straight answer for, for that um, at the moment. You know, it's just too early to tell. I know a lot of people kind of w went away for the holidays and, and, you know, we're getting feedback, we're, we're iterating on it. And hopefully in the next couple of months, we can start to, project when we think we'd be able to GA. Very cool, Nick. Hey, uh, is there anything that we missed before we sign off? You know, looking over the doc, I think we, we basically kind of covered everything. So that was that was really good. You know, I, I would say that the opportunity that we have right now talking about this as public preview is users do have a really good chance right now to help influence the way that the product goes. Mm -hmm. You know, things are still baking. And so, you know, definitely go give it a try. You can go to online.visualstudio.com to do that. Mm. And then, you know, give us your feedback. We have a GitHub repo set up and you can you can send that in and interact with me and the rest of the team. We would love to hear what your thoughts. Sounds good, man. Thank you. Awesome. This has been uh, quite enlightening. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, no problem. Thank you all. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a